Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have part two with Stanford Crane. No, that's awesome. And you're also involved in a couple of incubators. Do you want to maybe kind of cover those as well and, and kind of what they are exactly? Yeah, it's uh, the, the, I, we started out with the Silicon Valley Incubator. And, and this was around the time because I'm kind of a hardware guy. I did do a lot of BIOS work on sure, on my, sure. my company, the Panda Project. and But... But fundamentally, I was I was all about, you know, we, we live in a consumer-based economy, and yet we don't really have any consumer-based VCs. And and there's no one mentoring young consumer-based companies. Gotcha. And, gotcha. and to me, although I, I really applaud all the crowdfunding sites, I think that in some instances, it's probably not a good idea to announce to all your competitors what your product is and why it's so great. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, a la Pebble and the Apple Watch. Yep, yep. So, so what we do in the incubators, we take companies that are primarily consumer, or and they could be tech based. We have we we have a, the ability in one of our companies to create the world's greatest cloud server. Now, one would think that would be a no brainer, but I can tell you, when I took it to Facebook, they were like, "What do you mean that would like obsolete all the stuff we've done? Billions of dollars of work." Okay, what what do you mean by that? Like, why would why did they say that? I guess because uh, I'll give you the example. We 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 you know, and I have a hundred and something patents. I don't know how many I have in computer technology and architecture, but a lot. Sure, sure. And what I realized was that computers are not their performance is not limited by the fastest parts, meaning the processor, but it's limited by the slowest parts. Oh, and on fair. the server, the slowest part is the interface from the backplane of the blade server to, and uh, or the, I should say, the blade server to the backplane. And it was sort of funny because John Dvorak, who was you know the publisher and editor of PC Magazine, when I told him about this, he said, "You know, this is really technical stuff. I don't know anything about that, but I know the guy who's going to know about this. His name is Chet Heath. He's the one. Chet Heath was at IBM when he designed all the blade servers that are used by Google and Amazon." Amazon and Facebook and Apple, and they're all the same. And really, they're 20 years old now. The technology is 20 years old. And it's it's old from an electronics perspective. It's old from a thermodynamics perspective. It's old, it's old from a power consumption perspective. But what happens is people kind of get tied to the, well, the past, we put a lot of money into this. I don't really want to change. That's why I say all these VCs who say, oh, we like disruption, there are a handful of like disruption. Sure, sure. Everybody else wants to kind of do what the lemmings are doing. That's why we had 156 disk drive companies funded in the 80s. That's why we have 60,000 app companies funded in the 2000s. Interesting. Uh, so this is different and it's just disruptive. And uh, so it, it will see the light of day. But what we did basically was we took that interface, which was controlling the real output from the server and I, I created a new interface it's, it's called XO and XO looks electronically transparent to the signal to 30 gigahertz okay interesting so 
10 times faster than the fastest processor can run today. Oh, wow. That's awesome. So what it does basically is it makes much better throughput, so you lose less power. Right. From a noise perspective, and I'm not projecting this, it was tested by Samina SCI, that it was 100 to 1,000 times less noisy than the state of the art they're using today on every Cisco backplane and every Facebook and Google server. Interesting. Interesting. Wow. A thousand times less noise. That's, so that's incredible. That, that is true bandwidth. That's real throughput as opposed to theoretical bandwidth. And, you know, everybody says, oh, I'm trying to download a five meg file. I have 50 megabytes coming to my desktop. Why doesn't it load in a fraction of a second? Sure. It's, sure. it's because that isn't the real bandwidth. And, and Shannon Hartley wrote a very complex theorem, which they explain why Gaussian noise limits bandwidth. And that's why servers today don't really seem any faster than they were 10 years ago, because sure. they're not. Sure. But what I've done, basically, if you take the fastest computer in the world to Titan, and you look at their server that they run for their graphic analysis, their graphic bus, mm -hmm. our, in, in this company, the graphics bus runs 60 times as fast as that graphics bus. Oh, wow. Every memory system that's out there today is running on 30-year-old technology that we created when I was back at Molex. And so when I, if I were to update this, well, it would be disruptive. Why? Because you wouldn't need as much memory to get the same output. Sure. So, so we do a lot of disruptive things in Silicon Valley Incubator, but we do a lot of really cool things. We have things like pet project over there is called crane homes we design the most beautiful homes that are designed to be easily manufactured put up in two weeks be totally green and i was showing it to some uh, some doctors the other day uh, or crane homes and one of the doctors was joking around and said you know these are so beautiful that your tagline should be if you don't live in a crane home you might as well kill yourself <laughs> wow. So you said so, in two weeks you can have a full home from basically nothing to done. Right. From a foundation to comp to moving in in two weeks. Wow. So how do you even do that? I, like, Well, it, it's that's a really good question, Kevin. And, and the way you do it is what really makes up the house? Okay. Okay. And so it's made up of certain modules of walls and they can be put together in different ways. They can have the, say, le electrical and plumbing in certain modules and not in others. Right. You right. can then use technology to design those homes, not only for a site, but to take into account, for example, where solar panels would be, where's the best, where's the sun coming up, and so forth. So it is a, it's a very unique way of doing it. I'm doing it in concert with a, a, a fabulous designer I've known for years. His name is John Otis. He's a professor at Pratt Institute in New York, and uh, we're, we're very excited about it. Um, our, uh, another one uh, that we have, which is, is, again, kind of a really unique idea, is called Nino's Garage. Okay. And, and most people don't know today that the average age of a car in the U.S. is 11 and a half years. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, and, and so you think about it, we had 17 million cars sold last year as new, and the, the average age is still 11 and a half. Wow. So 
there are a lot of people who, you know, their car needs service, but they can't really afford to go have it serviced. Sure. So what Nino's does is it creates a service environment where you can do the work yourself. You know, there are a lot of people who are handy. You know, they could go in and change brakes or they could change their oil or change the antifreeze or whatever, but they don't have a place to dump the oil, don't have a place to dump the antifreeze. If you go to Nino's Garage, you have everything that a regular service department has, including the computer. You don't even need the tools. It's already there. Okay, interesting. So, so what we, and then what we do is we take all these, these uh, people who can't afford to open their own shop and we rent them out to you, whether they're kids from Wyotech or, or they're people who used to work at a dealership but weren't making, you know, here in, in San Jose, the, the average Chevrolet dealer gets $125 an hour for labor. Okay. Now, we all know that the mechanic isn't making $250,000 a year. Sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but he would like to make a good amount, and he can do the same thing. He's got the same computer in Nino's garage that he had there. He's got the same tool set. And so he could literally coach people. I coach a couple of bays on how to do these certain things on their car or help one or, or literally do the whole work himself and not have the overhead of, of all these other things. So it's a, a very unique way of, of do-it-yourself mechanics. Sure and, sure. and we've got a great model for it. There are great partners ready to go. And, uh, and, and frankly, on that one, what I just need is a little more bandwidth in the incubator so that we can, we can take it to the right venture capitalist. And that's, that's also one of my things. Ironically, um, most of my companies were, I got out here to Silicon Valley in, in 1999 because they bought one of my companies. Okay. But I had never okay. done any of my companies before that, the one that I sold to 3M or to LG, Northrop Grumman, or the one, one crane uh, connectors, which is still around today and profitable, you know, 30 years later, I, I never got money from Silicon Valley. Interesting. And, and Andy Bechtelsheim actually called me the most hated man in Silicon Valley at one time because I had created this fabulous computer at the Panda Project. Incidentally, I should mention that our Archistrat computer from the Panda Project was just uh, taken into the computer museum here in Silicon Valley. And so I'll have to put out on Twitter, I'll put a little uh, uh, thing out on Twitter showing uh, Sydney from the museum there accepting the orchestra. And these were computers that were so beautiful, they were picked at, by Jean Novel, who's the top architect and designer in France, as one of the top 200 science art objects in the world. Wow, that's awesome. Congrats. That's that's a huge accomplishment. Yeah, it was a, it was a great great uh, design, very groundbreaking, and, and had great technology as well. Uh, won the International Design Yearbook Award. It won ID Magazine's annual award. And when Steve Jobs came back to Apple, he went to Johnny Ive and said, make this stuff look more like Panda. Really? Yeah. Wow. Interesting. So, so that was really, it was, a, it was a controversial, very controversial company. Um, I, I started the company really to sell it to IBM, and they were too stupid to buy it. They were—they they have a saying, of course, at a lot of these big companies. It's called NIH. Sure. Do you know what that? No, not, I'm curious. Not invented here. <laughs> oh, so, okay. So they were so embarrassed when we went up to IBM and showed them that for forty million dollars we had created a greater cloud server than they had for four billion. Wow. That when we left the meeting, and some of the people. Uh, told us later 
they said when we left, the senior executive who's still there at IBM today said, nobody talks about this outside this room. Otherwise, Lou Gerstner fires all of us. Really? Wow. Yeah. So instead of saying, you know, let's embrace this new technology. This is, this is what happens to these big companies. And, then, of course, that's why venture capital has opportunity because a lot of people are calcified. And, and I think it would be better for the U.S. economy if they were a little more open-minded and not saying we know everything. I mean, AT&T, uh, uh, when I originally showed them the, the XO interface, which could be used in all of their switches, of course, they said, my God, we like to create and invent technology. We don't like to buy it. Sure. And so I said to them, I said to him, really, how's that working for you? <laughs> I love it. So they, they were simply so embarrassed, and that's where ego, there's a lot of scientific ego. And, you know, gee, if you did something I didn't do, then I have to put you down. And, and I think that kind of attitude is, 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 is actually commonplace. And I think, it's, I think it's hurtful to people, and I think it's hurtful to and not only the people, but it's hurtful to you know, industry in general, because they, some of the greatest ideas never see the light of day. So that's, that's really what Silicon Valley Incubator was about, these new kind of radical ideas that other people weren't nurturing. And so we nurture them there in the Silicon Valley Incubator and then try to find them homes. One of the companies actually went public. They were profitable before they ever left the incubator. Okay, really? Okay, what, what company was that? Do you want to talk a little that, bit that more was about GE. that? It was a GEC, and, and what they did was they built the world's best electric uh, utility cards. Okay. And they're the only ones that, you know, they have some steep hill, and I forget what the name of it is, in Seattle. And the police were always trying to get these carts, you know, for meter maids and for traffic and stuff. And, and so this was the only one that could actually climb up the hill. Really? That's awesome. I love it. <laughs> and they're used, at, they're used by the San Francisco police, by Santa Monica, by Los Angeles, by the parking committee. So anyway, they were bootstrapping their company. And instead of saying, okay, we have no revenues, but we'll have a $100 you know, million dollar pre-money valuation and we're going to grow to $500 million in revenue. Well, they didn't have a way to grow to $500 million. They were growing nicely. And this, this kind of leads me to one of the other things. I, I wrote a piece called Revitalizing America, which I put on LinkedIn. Sure. Because sure. I, I think we want to have a refresh. And, and venture capital does a very I, – I, I don't want to be harsh on them. They do a great job today of helping to create new companies. But fundamentally, we have a 16 or $17 trillion economy. Right. And two-thirds of that is consumer-based, and we have no real consumer-based venture capitalists. Okay, interesting. So what I said is why don't we and, – and also the whole venture model is, is flawed. It's built around unicorns. Now, you could have a nice little business doing 20 or $30 million a year, employ a lot of people successfully, and no venture capitalists would ever invest in you. Okay, why is that? I, out of curiosity. Because, as Mark Andreessen said, uh, the venture business is about unicorns. Okay. And 90% of all uh, investment returns from venture capitalists uh, come from these big, giant home runs. Got you. And so, so they're always swinging for the fences. Now, as Eileen Lee's study, on, and she's the one who coined the term unicorn, pointed out, out of the... 60,000 companies that, software companies that were invested from 2003 to 2013, 
only 39 of them became worth a billion dollars. Okay, interesting. So that means one out of every 1,500. Sure. I've heard it said, I don't know whether it's true, we could ask Kleiner, ask John Doerr, but I've heard it said that if you took nine investments out of Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield and Byers, that their fund would be have a negative return for 30 years. Wow. So... So what I'm getting at is is the problem in America, I think, today is a couple of things. And all these people who say, it's a, you know, if another Republican says it's about regulation, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> because it's not about regulation. It's about access to capital. And if you have a consumer-based idea, they'll say, go to the bank, get a loan. Banks, first of all, they don't even want to loan to small businesses. Secondarily, it's all collateral based. So if you just have an idea, which is what most great companies are built on, that's not worth anything to a bank. Sure. Okay. Sure. So what I'm proposing in, in what I call Plan 182, and Plan 182 is about 182 because that's the number of billions of dollars that the Fed bailed out AIG with. Okay. So from, from my standpoint, I said, why don't we give the $182 billion to entrepreneurs? And so we do it in three years, and uh, you know we basically put out uh, forty-five million the first year, right? No, I think it's thirty-five million, and then sixty-five million the second, and then the balance of the one eighty-two the third year. Well, here's what you do: you create a new venture capital system that's backed by the Fed. Okay. 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 So, and, and just to give you a perspective on how little this is. For them to do this, when we had QE3, their bond buying, in other words, the, the increase of their balance sheet, Fed's balance sheet, was about eighty billion dollars a month. Wow! So they could literally take three or four months and cover the entire Plan 182. Okay. But what we do okay. is we take the 435 congressional districts in the U.S. Every one of those gets a Tier One venture capitalist. Well, well, imagine this, if you had, when we have 435 congressional districts in the U.S., and they could adopt the same thing in Canada. Sure. sure. Um, well, anywhere, really. Anywhere, anywhere. It's I had people come over from Spain to talk to me about it because from the big bank over there, sure. because sure. they thought, gee, this may actually work. And, and what it does, basically, is if you, if you can localize business, and I say localized because in Plan 182, every congressional district gets its, you know, phase one venture capitalists. And, and these are the ones that basically, if you have any idea, uh, for example, you want to start a lawn business. No mm -hmm. venture capitalist is going to fund that. Sure. Sure. Okay. So okay. In, in the first, over three years, a phase one venture capitalist tier one will invest $112 million in that congressional district in new businesses. Interesting. Okay. They have to invest in that district. Sure. I think that makes a lot of sense. Here's, here's another thing that's different about the venture capital program. So then you have uh, 200 uh, additional ones that have a couple of hundred million dollars to invest. Okay. So it's, it's typically done, uh, in, in this case, every state, you know, get, gets four of them. Got you. So then the third one is, is the biggest investor group, and that's done simply by the 50 biggest 
population spaces in the country. But what they can all do is like you could have a good one that took off in phase one and the guy goes, hey, I, I see they need 10 million bucks. That's right in my sweet spot. Okay, interesting. So I'll, I'll go in with you on that. And so, and here's the other thing is they, they get, pen, I mean, you have to invest that money. Okay. So people will say, oh, well, we'll invest in a lot of bad things. Well, apparently our professional VCs are already doing that because they invested in 60,000 companies. Only 39 of them became unicorns. Yep. So, but what we will do is get a lot of sustaining businesses and, and your return doesn't have to be a liquidity event. It could be you simply have what's called a certificate of participation where you get X number of dollars of every dollar they sell. Got you. So it's very flexible in how to get returns. And, and again, I hate this sort of, this is the way it's always been. We have to do it this way. Here's another thing that changes. You don't make billionaire venture capitalists. Nothing against John Doerr and Tom Perkins and everybody, but the entrepreneurs should be the ones, in my view, that become the billionaires if they hit a home run, not the venture capitalists. Sure, know that. I, I agree. Capitalists are betting other people's money, and they're getting paid well to do it. Sure. So what we do is we cap the upside of every venture capitalist in these newly created 735 venture capital firms in the U.S. Wow. At $10 million for an event. Okay. Over and above that, the venture capitalists really didn't do that much. Okay. You know, if his... And so here's how it works. It's the same sort of in the big funds, it's 2%. So you, you, you get 2% to run your office and then 20% of the upside. Okay, interesting. But th that upside has to be distributed not to a single partner, but to your core team. Okay. And, there are some, and here's the other thing. Instead of making, you know, I, kn I knew venture capitalists that were making $3 million a month on their carry wow so do they really care that's why we call them zombies they don't care <laughs> they're living the high life sure they say oh there, there isn't anybody good enough for me to invest in that's a very common theme so the reality here is you can only make a maximum of five times the median income in your congressional district okay interesting so in other words we're not paying you some gigantic fee because you're supposed to be part of the people here and, you know, and you're not, you know, an elitist who made, you know, I'm not going to mention any names, but a hedge fund manager who made $4 billion just because he had a giant fund. Got you. So, uh, so from my standpoint, I think this is a really important thing for people to embrace. I, uh, it, it is, you know, some, Venture capitalists said, wow, this is kind of disruptive because it really changes the ballgame a little bit. In, in actuality, it's just additive. Sure. You know, you know, if you're in Detroit and you want to create something new, the likelihood of you getting venture capitalists is like zero. Yeah, exactly. If you are in Little Rock, Arkansas, it's the same. Yep. But there are smart people there that have ideas. For sure. And, and if you could keep the money being invested in the local... Uh, you know, take Compton. You think they'd like to have $112 million put into their community over the next three years? For sure. And it would benefit huge, right? Yeah. It, it's, it's only positive. 
Totally. And, and it gets rid of not only the the unemployment, you know, but also the underemployment and the labor participation rate in the U.S., which is at, you know, 40-year lows. Sure. Sure. And, oh, by the way, all these kids who have their college debt would actually be able to pay it off. So, so, so that's really kind of one of the sweeping things, and I would love to hear some presidential candidate talk about it, but they're also insulated from reality that you could never get it to them, unfortunately. Yeah. So that's kind of, um, you know, and, and I, you can just imagine how many more entrepreneurs you would have on who would say, hey, I went to Plan 182, and I got $2 million for my first part of my idea, and then a tier three venture capitalist put $50 million in my company. Sure. No, I think that's awesome. And it's interesting that, that you know, the, venture capitalists are always talking about, well, anybody that's investing, they're always talking about like deal flow and how sometimes they struggle with that. And when you kind of give them this opportunity, um, it seems like there's some kind of hesitation sometimes. Do you, do you Have you found that? Sure, sure. And, and one, of the, one of the problems, Kevin, is you have some person, you know, and, and by and large, they're either from Stanford or Harvard, sure, who ironically, sure. who ironically didn't read Jeffrey Moore's book, even when it was required reading of crossing the chasm. Otherwise, they would realize they're basically in the chasm all the time. Got you. But, but at any rate, so they're the gatekeepers, and you sure. send it sure. into the info at so and so, and it's being read by some low-level person, and there aren't enough of them even to read it. And so what they really should be doing is they should have like five times as many of those people and they should be told your job is to go out there and find us these things, right. find us right. the different ones, you know, so that doesn't exist. It's kind of a, we're, we're in what some of my friends call, uh, and in fact, I was talking to one of them the other day, a retired venture capitalist. He said, we're in the third generation venture capital now. Okay. First generation was they were successful business people, they invested in technology companies, even like Intel, and, you know, we're sad to hear that Andy Grove passed away today, but totally. cer certainly created a great company. But but then you had the second generation, which were like people who started out as engineers, then maybe went to business school and said, hey, you know, I think I can understand both parts of this. Now we're in the third generation, and, and according to him, and perhaps he was being slightly unkind, but so you have a bunch of people who never really worked in a real company in their life. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. went to either Stanford or Harvard and got an MBA because they read, you know, 10 case studies and they thought that's how business went. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And so when, when you're out there trying to make a sale, they don't really know what it's like to be out there. And that's why you hear all these, I, I hear these terms today that are just laughable, like chief, chief, a revenue officer. What the hell is that? <laughs> you know, we can't say salesperson. We have to say business development. Right. And something we do in our incubator, which is fantastic, and it's totally disarming, is we have a guy who walks in and goes, hey, I'm the sales guy. I'm here to make a sale. Who do I talk to about that? And it's almost like, gee, we, we nobody's really told us that. Oh, we're not. It's not some extrapolation that we're trying to. We're, hey, hey, we got a product here. We'd like to sell it. Are you interested in buying it? Does it meet your needs? How can we change it to make it better? So I, I think just getting back to some of these things, the core elements of business is, is in part what Plan 182 does because it is fundamental business. Like, how do we get our word out? You know, I, I see so many companies here 
and I'm not putting them down, you know, I guess maybe some of them will be successful, but when I go into a company that raised $25 million at a $250 million post, and they haven't developed a monetization strategy yet, I wonder what the hell is going on in these VCs' minds. Sure. So, uh, and, 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 you know, because they have a lot of money, they, they, and everybody's doing it, you know, just like everybody's doing it, just like out of Wall Street. So I'm in it too. I mean, I'm mean, 99th, you know, there are, well, I, there are over a million. I don't know what the exact number is, but there are over a million apps on the iTunes store that have never had one download. Totally. So maybe we're kind of peeking out there. Maybe people need something other than apps. Interesting. So, uh, so I think, you know, and, and, and again, like a Nino's Garage, they say, well, there's not a technology component to it. Well, you know, it, it's a, it's something that's desperately needed by a big marketplace. You know, I, I literally had a venture capitalist tell me that EA was a technology company. Okay. And I'm like, are we talking about electronic arts? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a technology company. Really? Because <laughs> I thought they were a content company. <laughs> yeah. But, well, that's the way they saw it. You know, I, I had another one tell me Netflix was a technology company. Okay. And I said, well, originally, as you remember, they delivered these discs to your house through the post office. <laughs> totally. I remember that. Yeah. And it, and it just so happens now, technology is caught up with them, so they stream it to you. But they're a content company. Totally. Oh, no, no. They're a technology company. Okay. So well, if that's your reality, that's the reality. But but the truth is something different from their reality. Well, I, I think it's interesting because basically – I, by that definition, then everybody's a technology company because they use technology, right? Like yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, like interesting. That's that's very very interesting. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting space, and I, I love your opinions on, you know, kind of the valley being in the valley, and you're not really from the valley, and you haven't been in the valley your entire career, and in some ways you haven't been in the valley most of your career. Yeah, I have different perspectives, and and. Uh, you know, I, I've, I can, you know, we can all remember when they kicked Steve Jobs out because they didn't think he was doing the right thing. Totally, which and, was and fascinating. Scully admitted to me later that he, when he saw our Panda computers, he said, "If Apple had this, they'd go right back to number one in a heartbeat." And I said, "Why do you say that, John?" And he said, "Because the number one checkpoint on every computer would be, is it upgradable?" Right. Right. And that's why Andy Bechtelsheim called me the most hated man in Silicon Valley. And he did it in an interesting way. We were at, uh, we were in Palo Alto at Ilfranaya when he stands up and he's six feet seven and he has his German accent. He goes, so, Mr. Crane, congratulations on pissing off literally everybody in Silicon Valley. And half the restaurant turns around like, what the hell is this idiot doing here? So I said, well, thank you. At least I didn't piss off anyone in Redmond, Washington. That might have been a problem. <laughs> And he goes, why did you create a computer that could last for 10 years? I said, that's a good idea, isn't it? He goes, yeah, it's a good idea for the users. It's not such a good idea for those of us who make our living off of giving them a new one every two years. Sure. No, totally. That, that's interesting. It's that like it. Well, it's that old school mindset, right? Like there's fridges running still from the 50s. But like if I bought a fridge in the last 10 years or 20 years, it's probably still not running at all. Yeah. And, and, and here's the. Here's the crazy part, too. I mean, I just saw this today. Cincinnati Bell is trying to decide if they will shut down their telegraph service. 
Really? What? Yeah. <laughs> you can Google it. You'll see it. Okay. Interesting. I didn't even realize. So it's like, what? You know, Mark Twain once said, and I lived in Cincinnati, so I can appreciate this. Um, he once said, if I heard the world was ending, I'd move to Cincinnati because it wouldn't happen for 75 years. <laughs> that's awesome. That's, that's so, but it is really, I think it's a, uh, one, of, one of the great things about being an entrepreneur is you can kind of, you can create the future. It's not easy. Sure. But, but you can do it. And, and that's what makes it so enjoyable. It's not really the money. It's, not, it's about having a dream that you can do something, working with people who are trying to pull in the same direction. And that's rare, incidentally. As you, almost every company I started, we, had, we ended up having people, you know, thank goodness, in World Motor Clash and in New Guard Entertainment, we don't have this, but we had people who were pulling the opposite direction just sure. because they, they wanted to. Sure. It, it is. It, it can be really tricky to find the right team members. And obviously you've been through it a lot um, more times than I have and whatnot. But I think that's a really good kind of point to just kind of bring up. Right. Because, yeah, it, it can be really tricky that not everybody's working in the same direction. And sometimes even internally, people are kind of fighting to go the right direction. Right. Yeah. And, and, and it's, you know, the, these bad apples, they do poison the whole bunch because the people who are going like, Hey man, I'm trying to make something happen here. What yeah, are you doing? Totally. Well, you know, I just think we're in the wrong direction. Well, that's the direction that it seems like the rest of us think we should go. Well, I don't think so. Okay. So they're slowing up code or, you know, whatever it is, they do it. And, and to me, that's a real, I mean, I tell you, we had a, uh, a, Panda, we had to create our own uh, interconnects because 3M was was uh, having some problems doing it. So we did it, and we had to run so many shifts to just keep these things coming out because we were selling a lot. Sure. So um, we we it turns out people were like dealing drugs on the late night shift what? out of our of our warehouse, wow. out of our uh, manufacturing facility, and so we got them arrested. We were like, "What the hell are you doing? You had a decent job here." Sure. Wow. So it's you run into all kinds of bizarre. You know, people always say to me, "How many kids do you have?" And I said, "I've got at least like 500 <laughs> because that's how many I had in my companies. I mean, it, it really is a, a it's a, it's a tough thing, but it's also a rewarding thing, and that's the key part. You, if you want to focus on the negatives in life, you shouldn't be an entrepreneur. No, I I, I think that's great, but. Uh... Stanford, I should let you get on with your uh, day. I've kept you for uh, two episodes now, basically. So, you know, maybe let's let's close this thing just mentioning where people can uh, find you online at your different kind of ventures. Okay. Yeah, The uh, well, a lot of our, uh, you know, finding me online will be a little tricky because a lot of our ventures, we, we don't want to really publicize okay. them that much. But I am on Twitter. And we and we talk about a lot of different things that are in the in the incubators, whether it's the cybersecurity incubator or the Silicon Valley incubator, and you, and you can always I, I never turn down connections on LinkedIn. I think it's important to to you know become part of the community, and uh, and you know just reach out to me and we'll I'll, I'll try to help you out if I can, and and maybe we can even do some business or or uh, but but again I'm I'm uh, I'm accessible. Sure, and I'll, and I'll post um your a link to your LinkedIn profile and and Twitter um on the show notes as well, so people can find it on the website and and whatnot. 
Right, terrific. And hey, Kevin, thanks for uh, you know what you're doing here because you know it's it's almost like getting a in some ways it's like getting a a real time MBA just by listening to people who are in the trenches doing it. Yeah, no, it, it's awesome, and you know, like we connected on social media, and I I love the fact that you know a couple months later we're we're recording the show, and I I really appreciate you taking um, the time to to be on the show and. I know you you met up with one of my business partners recently when she was down in San Francisco. You know, I, I think it's awesome what you've done for the community, what you're what, and what you continue to do for the community. And I love that you're you have these big ideas and you're you're going after them. And I love that. And I think that's super inspiring to people. And you know, I'm I'm, I'm glad that you took the time out of your day to do this. And the fact that I got two shows out of it is is incredible to me. Well, it was it was my pleasure, Kevin, and and uh, you know look forward to to uh, helping you in any way we can. Sure, that's great, man. Well, um, thanks again for doing it, and uh, we'll be in touch, and we'll talk soon. All right, sounds great, Kevin. Um, Have thank a you. great day. You too. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.